Hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. Having just celebrated Easter yesterday, today's episode looks at the connections between the book of Ezekiel and the resurrection of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Not only will we gain an appreciation for how important the Old Testament is to the Easter message, we'll also gain some new insights into the resurrection itself through what we learn from Ezekiel. I had a couple of other things planned today. I even recorded an entirely different episode until I realized, what am I doing? This is Holy Week. What a great opportunity to show how being saturated with all the Bible can enrich even the most routine parts of our Christian faith. Rather than taking a break from Ezekiel to talk about Jesus' resurrection, though, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to highlight how Ezekiel actually enriches our celebration of Easter how it actually gives more depth to our appreciation of the resurrection and all that it means. To do that, though, we got to skip ahead to the end. So we're going to press pause on the first few chapters of the book, fast forward to the Valley of Dry Bones in chapter 37, because there's some really amazing ways that Matthew plays off that passage in his portrayal of Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're not going to cover everything there is to know about Ezekiel 37 in this episode. We'll save a closer look for when we get to that chapter down the line in our study of Ezekiel. But I do want to give an overview and highlight some things that will come up when we work through Matthew's passion account. So I'm going to have Libby Hilliard up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, read Ezekiel 37 for us to help us dive in. This is Ezekiel 37, 1-14, in the NIV translation. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Great. Thanks, Libby. Now, we may be tempted to take the easy route here and say, hmm... 
Ezekiel 37 predicts God bringing about resurrection from the dead, and Jesus fulfills that by raising from the dead. Boom. Prophecy, fulfillment, slam dunk, Sunday school bonus points. Well, for one thing, what do we gain from that sort of connection? We might gain an appreciation for how interconnected the two testaments in the Bible are. We might have a little bit better idea of how Jesus is the long-awaited answer to so many Old Testament expectations. But that's about it. It doesn't really tell us anything insightful about that resurrection and what it means. But the real issue with that connection is not that it's disappointing, it's that it doesn't really work. It's not really that simple. Ezekiel 37 isn't really about bodily resurrection from the dead any more than Ezekiel 1 is about flying chariots in the sky carried by mythical creatures. This is a vision. The first verse says that Ezekiel is carried by the Spirit with the hand of the Lord upon him, and the Spirit is functioning like the prophet's fifth-dimensional tour guide, leading Ezekiel around, asking him questions, pointing things out. So think about what the book of Ezekiel is about. You're probably pretty familiar with this at this point in the podcast if you've been tuning in. The people of Israel have been on a downward spiral for hundreds of years of history, both as a nation and spiritually. First, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered and captured by the international superpower Assyria. They're dispersed throughout various countries and systematically destroyed in terms of their identity as Israelites as a result. But the southern kingdom, known as Judah, is still hanging on, just barely though. Spiritually, there's some ups and downs, but mostly downs. And the new international superpower, Babylon, has been taking Judah over in waves. So we've got Jewish exiles living in Babylon who have been deported there in one of those waves. But the nation's capital, Jerusalem, is still there. There's still a glimmer of hope. And that's where Ezekiel steps into the scene for the first half of the book. Only it's not so good news. It's actually going to get worse, the Lord says. Look, despite all the tragedy, you've been totally missing the point. This isn't over yet. Despite the lies you've been tricking yourself into believing, your hard-hearted rejection of me and my message is still going on. And throughout the first 24 chapters of Ezekiel, the Lord delivers these shocking, probing prophecies to wake these people up, to call them back to himself. But as a whole, they're not having it. But then the critical turning point happens right in the middle of the book. Jerusalem falls and the news reaches Ezekiel and the exiles. It's over. Like, it's really over now. No more lies are even possible about their invincibility or, or them being God's favorite. And that's when the tone of the book shifts. That's when, at the lowest of all lows, God begins to raise them up. Because those barriers are gone now. They're truly listening. They're honest about what they need and who they need to get them there. So Ezekiel 37, the Valley of Dry Bones, is part of that second half. It's part of those promises of hope and restoration for a broken down, despairing people with no visible way forward. 
Now, does it really make sense to say that Ezekiel just randomly decided to branch out into a theological discussion of bodily resurrection before and after he gives prophecies for the future of Israel as a nation of God's people? No, that's taking things out of context for sure. The stunning vision of bones coming together and a resurrected throng of Israelites is part of that probing, provocative style. Only this time, it's meant to shock them into what God can do in another sense, to, to wake them up to hope. God is in the business of breathing life and hope into hopeless situations, of taking the worst of history and, and channeling it toward the redemption of all things. So what are the parts of this passage that we want to highlight for today? Well, for one thing, notice how the Spirit's breathing life into the dry bones doesn't actually all happen at once, but in stages. First, the flesh and skin all comes back together, but there's no wind, no breath, no spirit, no life in them. And then after that, the wind, the breath, the spirit actually vivifies these mummies, and they live. They stand on their feet, a great host, a huge army. After the armies of Israel were decimated by the Babylonians, this would be really emotional, actually. Also notice, though, how central the Spirit of God is to this prophecy. Not only does the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, become this key word with many word plays on it throughout the passage, The Spirit is the one who actually transports the prophet to this vision and guides him through it. And if we're not buying it on some subtle literary hints, the the passage is super explicit about it by the end. In case we didn't really catch the point here, the Lord declares, I will put my Spirit within you, and you shall live. Okay, so somehow the, the Holy Spirit is a key and necessary player in this ultimate hope being realized. And it all involves a a dramatic shift in how the Spirit functions in the life of the believer. Now, another thing to note, look at how community-oriented this is. Ezekiel is not the one being raised from the dead in this vision. It's his people, his Jewish brothers and sisters, a vast army of them. Son of man, puny mortal, These bones are the whole house of Israel, verse 11 says. They're the target audience. That community that says our hope is lost. They're the ones God says he will put his spirit in and raise from their graves. Which leads to one last thing to notice here. Notice the specific language and images used in this prophecy. That'll be important when we look at Matthew 27. There's the repeated emphasis on opening the graves, raising from the graves, repeated emphasis on breath and spirit. In verse 7, there's a quake. Now, a lot of translations have a rattling, like, like it's the rattling of the bones that he's hearing. But other translations actually have earthquake. It's not 100% clear, e- even though the rattling makes total sense. The, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what the New Testament writers often used, it, 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 there it's the same word for earthquake, seismos type stuff. So, all right, now let's, let's turn to Matthew. A couple of things to know about Matthew. The gospel is saturated in the Old Testament. 
I mean, pretty much the entire New Testament is too, but like really with Matthew. Some go so far as to say that the dominant theme of Matthew is fulfillment. But here's where we need to be careful. Matthew is more sophisticated than prediction fulfillment reference kind of stuff. There are a lot of places where Matthew uses the phrase, and this happened to fulfill the scripture such and such. But even in those places, the connection envisioned between that Old Testament passage and something in the life of Christ is not always the same. Some are pretty direct. Yeah, this is what the prophet has written. Out of Bethlehem will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, Matthew 2, 5 through 6. Okay, pretty straightforward, right? But others are more like a beta test to full release kind of connection, what's called typological, how a shadow relates to the actual object. So further down in that chapter, Matthew 2, 14 through 15, Joseph takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt, and Matthew claims this fulfills what the Lord has said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now where that originated in Hosea 11.1, 1, that's talking about Israel, not Jesus. But the nation of Israel anticipated someone to come and take up and complete all that it was supposed to be. So in a A what's more B or A to the nth degree relationship, Matthew can say, yeah, this fulfilled that, but in a different kind of way, because he doesn't have as rigid a category of fulfillment as we might. One more, go a few verses down again, Matthew 2, 16 through 18, after Herod slaughters the Israelite babies in Bethlehem. Matthew says, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now we have a hard time even saying this is typological. The connection is more of an application, like like this was a supreme example of what we've heard or experienced in this passage. And think about it, all three kinds of fulfillments are there in just one chapter of Matthew's gospel. And what's more, this is just the stuff he says, this fulfilled this. Not to mention all the allusions and metaphors and themes that are more implicit and and subtle. So we have good reason to think that Matthew might be drawing on the prophecies of Ezekiel, since we've already seen him draw on three other prophets in just one chapter. And we also have good reason to believe that the connection Matthew is drawing might be more sophisticated and complex than just, this said Jesus was born to Bethlehem, he was born in Bethlehem. Prediction, fulfillment, slam dunk, Sunday school bonus points. These connections are really important to Matthew and its message, but they're rich and refined. They, they reveal an in-depth knowledge of the Old Testament passage that's being drawn on. So now let's go to Matthew's account of Jesus' death and resurrection, of what we just rehearsed and celebrated over the weekend, with these things in mind. I asked Libby to read again for us Matthew 27, 45 through 54. This is Matthew 27, 45 through 54 in the NIV translation. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. 
About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified. And they exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. The word of the Lord. So, Matthew doesn't say this happened to fulfill Ezekiel 37. What's the deal, Andrew? You just making stuff up now? Well, already in what we heard, Jesus quotes a psalm from the cross. The people discuss Elijah, and there's a massive focus on the temple. So, again, Matthew is saturated in Old Testament scriptures. So, where's Ezekiel in this then? Well, did you catch any of what we highlighted earlier? What does Jesus do in the climactic moment of the cross? He cries out and yields up his spirit. The sending out of that spirit is what makes what happen? Well, the earth shakes, an earthquake occurs, a seismos, verse 54 calls it. And then what? The tombs, the graves are opened, and the bodies of many saints are raised, coming out of the tombs. Again, a repeated emphasis on that. But when? They come out of the tombs after his resurrection. Now, why would Matthew want to specify something like that? These people were raised out of their graves. But, oh yeah, it wasn't until step two, Jesus' resurrection, that they came out and appeared to people. It's as if this is happening in two stages. Hmm. Now, you may think something in there is a bit of a stretch, but you got to admit, you put all of it together and it can't be just a coincidence, especially given what we know about Matthew. All right, Andrew, I concede there's something there, but so what? Might add a little zest and spice to the story, but it doesn't inform much, does it? Well, now I'll just put all my cards on the table. It seems to me that if Matthew is going to go out of his way to depict the crucifixion and resurrection in ways that point to Ezekiel 37, he's doing more than just varying his vocabulary. It's like Psalm 22, right? What Jesus quotes on the cross in what we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not like Jesus just couldn't think of what to say, so he just quotes a psalm. That psalm has meaning. And the more we understand that psalm, the more we understand what Jesus is saying and going through. I think it's the same deal with Ezekiel 37. Matthew is intentionally adding the Valley of Dry Bones to the backdrop of this scene. He's putting it in our minds as we look on the Passion narrative so that we draw those sophisticated connections. 
Now, how does that inform our understanding of Jesus' death and resurrection? Well, remember how we said that Ezekiel's vision unfolds in two connected steps? He prophesies over the bones, and they regain their shape. But then it's not over. And if it was over, it'd be worthless, just mummies. It's the spirit, the life, that pours into them that makes the visionary miracle complete. I think that has weight in Matthew 27. Think about the note in verse 53 about the saints only coming to visit the saints after the resurrection. If Matthew really has Ezekiel 37 in the back of his mind here, then that says something about how we understand Jesus' death and resurrection to be related to each other. Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely essential and literally earth-shattering. But it's only after the resurrection that the bodies of the saints that were raised from the graves come out and interact person to person. Christ's death and resurrection are linked the way the two steps in the Valley of Dry Bones are linked. They're incomplete without each other. Good Friday is not just the downer obstacle to Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday is not just the cherry on top to what already got fixed on Good Friday. They go hand in hand to really bring about redemption. Jesus not only died to self on the cross, he took on death itself, our sin and its punishment. But it's in the resurrection that he truly defeats it and secures that life that we need to be more than mere mummies. So when you celebrate Easter, don't just go to both services. Connect them in your minds and hearts. Christ dying for our sins would do no good if he was still dead. And we would still be dead, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ didn't raise victorious. There is one way that Ezekiel enriches our Easter's. It it helps us see the link between Christ's death and resurrection. It's more than just a theological concept some scholar came up with in an armchair. After seeing Ezekiel 37's influence in Matthew 27, we can see how that's actually coming from the Bible itself. With the Valley of Dry Bones in the backdrop, we see that Matthew's note about the saint's resurrection only being complete after Jesus' resurrection isn't a random comment. It shows that Christ's resurrection completes the saving process that the crucifixion began. But if what we said about Ezekiel 37's focus on the Spirit of God is true, then it doesn't just strengthen the link between Christ's death and resurrection, it strengthens the link between Easter and Pentecost. Maybe Jesus crying out and and yielding up his spirit is just a coincidence, not entirely sure to be honest. The phrase does show up in other Gospels like John. But the New Testament is no stranger to the idea that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ushers in the new age of the Spirit. And this only reinforces that. Listen to Acts 2.32, way back in the beginning of the book of Acts, when the church receives the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and gives a sermon explaining what's going on. He explains This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. 
Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So the church receiving the Holy Spirit in the first place is a direct result of Jesus resurrecting from the dead and ascending to the heavenly realm. So don't just link Good Friday and Easter Sunday together in your minds and your hearts. Link the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when you think about Easter. The Valley of Dry Bones showcases the Holy Spirit as the big protagonist, the key solution and active agent of life and redemption. And with that prophecy in the background of Matthew's passion narrative, it's another signal within the text that that's all true of what Jesus brought about. We might otherwise think this is just some theological mumbo-jumbo, but having a deep understanding of Ezekiel and the connections Matthew is making helps us see that this is actually a part of the Easter story as it's written. Jesus ushers in the ultimate hope that Ezekiel 37 envisions. And the key component of that hope in the Valley of Dry Bones is a new relationship with believers in the Holy Spirit. No, the Gospel of Matthew isn't explicitly saying the key player is actually the Holy Spirit here. Obviously, the focus of the story is Jesus' own death and resurrection. But the saturation of the Old Testament allusions and prophecies inject the story with the expectations and, and implications of a host of biblical passages. Part of that interconnected sophistication I'm claiming here includes the Valley of Dry Bones. And that at least hints to us how the new age of the Spirit's indwelling is brought about by what we celebrate during Easter. All right, so another important layer that Ezekiel 37 adds to the scene is the link between Christ and his people. That community-oriented hope and message beyond just individualistic spirituality. I think the original readers of the Bible were already way more inclined to think this way than we are anyway, but the fact that many saints come out of their graves as a result of Jesus' resurrection is not just a random comment either. The longing in the Valley of Dry Bones is for a, a hope for the nation, the whole people of God. It's for a new way forward, a new destiny that marks the community. And that's exactly what Christ's death and resurrection accomplish. A hope for the nation, the whole people of God. A new way forward, a new destiny that marks the community. Jesus is the new Adam, Romans says. For those that are linked to him, united to him, which is what Christians are, we are linked to that new humanity, that new hope, that new community with a new destiny. The upshot of Jesus' resurrection is that the age and destiny of resurrection is secured for his people. Just like Ezekiel has promised a hope for the whole house of Israel, Jesus secures that hope for the whole house of his followers. Now, remember, the Valley of Dry Bones isn't actually directly promising anything like bodily resurrection. But even though this isn't one of those direct prediction fulfillment things, this Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, boom. 
that doesn't mean there isn't another kind of fulfillment happening here. That beta test to full released kind of connection, what's been dubbed typological, how a shadow relates to the actual object. Ezekiel presents the powerful prophetic message toward the end of the book that God is in the business of breathing life into hopeless situations. Not only does the value of dry bones show us a powerful prophecy anticipating that, but Matthew draws on that prophecy to signal, hey, this is it. This is the ultimate answer. This is the way that happens for us. This is the hope and life for hopeless dry bones like us, the future for our people. It's not as dull or simplistic as resurrection foretold, resurrection fulfilled. It's an emotional, evocative, big reveal. At the lowest of all lows, when Israel saw absolutely no way forward, the Lord reassured them that he could do anything to bring about the redemption he was promising them, even raise an army of corpses back to spirit-filled life. But in the turning point of all of history, the Messiah epitomizes that promise by actually raising from the dead with spirit-filled life and raising a host of saints from their graves with him. So I hope all this discussion has done more than make you sit back and say, huh, fascinating. I hope it's enriched your understanding of all that Easter means. I hope it's infused your appreciation of what Christ has done with all the powerful emotions of the Valley of Dry Bones. I hope it's made you double-take at the passion narratives in the Gospels so you think, wow, there's so much depth here that I've yet to discover. Instead of sitting there on Easter Sunday thinking, well, here we go again. I hope it's been one big practical piece of proof for what we've been claiming here on the podcast, that a deeper understanding of the neglected parts of Scripture will actually enrich and prepare you for the Christian life, even something as routine as Easter celebration. We didn't dig into all there is to know about the Valley of Dry Bones, but we highlighted some key features that pop up in Matthew 27. And as Matthew makes these artistic, brilliant, sophisticated connections to Ezekiel 37, he infuses his account of Jesus' death and resurrection with the significance of what Ezekiel envisions and portrays. When we connect the dots that Matthew leaves us, we connect aspects of Easter that we might have been tempted to neglect. The link between Christ's death and resurrection. The link between Easter and Pentecost. The link between Christ and his people. It's all reinforced and augmented by how Christ relates to what the Valley of Dry Bones anticipates. Easter is even bigger and more holistic than we imagined when we see the way it relates to the new life we can live by the life of Christ's Spirit, to the new life we can confidently hope in, secured in Christ's own resurrection life. Our bones may decay as dry and brittle as the ones in that valley, buried in graves further below than the tombs of those saints, but what Ezekiel has envisioned, Christ has secured. These bones will yet live. The Spirit will bring new life. 
because of the resurrected life of our Messiah. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If you found this brief look into a part of Ezekiel helpful, then you won't want to miss out on our careful look through the whole thing. A new episode is released every Monday, and you want to be sure to check it out. But as we close for today, I want to pray part of Catholic Charities President Father Larry Snyder's Easter prayer from 2013, enriched with the depth, insight, and emotion of the Valley of Dry Bones. Good and gracious God, our most glorious creator, as we greet the signs in nature around us of spring once again regaling us in bloom, we give you praise for an even greater sign of new life, the resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our guarantee that justice will triumph over treason, light overcome darkness. As we celebrate, we also dare to ask for your grace that we may live the promise given to us by imitating the life of Jesus. Change our lives, change our hearts to be messengers of Easter's joy and hope. We make our prayer through Jesus Christ, our risen Lord forever. Amen. Amen.